Okay, before we get to the news this week, we have to cut in because, oh my God, did you just see that announced on the LinuxFoundation.org website, Segwit 2, which we've talked about for a couple of weeks on this show, The Final Steps is the name of a blog post. Mike Belshi from BitCo announces that Segwit 2 has been cancelled. And as a result, the Bitcoin price is up nearly 9%. Segwit 2, for those familiar, was the upgrade where the block sizes of Bitcoin were going to move from 1 megabyte to 2 megabytes. This was forged through years and years of wrangling, years of arguing. The words here from Mike from BitGo are quite interesting. He says, Our goal has always been for a smooth upgrade of Bitcoin. Although we strongly believe in the need for a larger block size, there is something we believe is even more important, keeping the community together. Unfortunately, it's clear that we've not built sufficient consensus for a clean block size upgrade at this time. Continuing on the current path would divide the community and be a setback to Bitcoin's growth. This was never the goal of SegWit2. As fees rise on the blockchain, we believe that eventually it will become obvious that on-chain capacity increases are necessary, and then we'll come back to this debate. Interesting times for sure. And of course, we didn't get a chance to cover this when we recorded the news, so we'll cover all of this. And the small matter of the parity hack, which looks like now developer called DevOps199 has somehow managed to push some code and accidentally kill nearly $280 million of Ether that was locked in various wallets. So you can almost consider today's news show the prequel to the movie that comes out next week when we go into this in lower detail. So over to the news for the prequel to one of the best stories I think I've ever heard. are here at 11FS headquarters in London WeWork for episode 19 of Blockchain Insider. Today we bring you an e-gaming special as we have two interviews from e-gamers using blockchain to improve the user experience of gamers everywhere. Bitcoin hits new highs again and we talk about Segwit 2. What do you need to know before it happens? Now on with the news. Joining me for the news once again is at Colin G. Platt. At Colin G. Platt, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing all right. I'm still a bit mortified with that we are here today, though. Uh, I thought it was a good we are here. Um, And besides, it's early here. Just because you're traveling around the world, some of us have to record early to accommodate your travels. (laughs) You see these tan lines I got going here? I I do not, but that's a very dark room you're in. (laughs) So you could be lying to me about getting a tan. I think you've just been nerding out and uh, following what's been happening in DevCon and and God knows what's been happening with the Bitcoin price as well. My goodness. Uh, uh, Paul Vigner in Wall Street Journal with the first story, Colin. Uh, Bitcoin hit $7,000 as Wall Street interest got real. What's, What's the synopsis here? Well, I, I think that he, he missed a trick because I saw nearly uh, $7,600. So um, this stuff has really been on fire. We're up, what, 800% this year? Um, I, I'm not really sure where it's going to go in the end. Um, I'm not sure why it's this high. Is it a bubble? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, we don't get a whole lot of depth talking about Wall Street. It is an interesting idea that they're getting into it. Um, it's still a bit early. There's still a lot of stuff that isn't really out there. Very interestingly about this, the whole notion of not having infrastructure uh, to make Bitcoin work. 
is also one of the things that's hindering institutions from getting into it. Yeah, there are a number of brokers, the eToros, the IGs the, of, of the world who've been selling Bitcoin for quite some time. And uh, and around the world, Fidelity went and integrated with uh, Coinbase uh, directly. So this is uh, a number of ways in which large institutions are recognizing an appetite from wealthy individuals to get access to Bitcoin and Ether uh, and other things as the prices increased. Uh, but actually, the way in which they would manage some of those cryptocurrencies is quite different to how they would manage some of the traditional assets. This is much more akin to trying to manage a bar of gold inside a vault and making sure somebody has that vault taken care of. Uh, and there's no such thing as sort of these custodian banks that we have in, in uh, capital markets today. And Colin, just talk me through what a custodian is and how it it, it might be a little bit different uh, to, to what we see in, in Bitcoin and Ethereum land today. Right. So in, in traditional securities markets, um, things that deal with like stocks and bonds where there's actual paper that represents ownership of a company, um, there are banks referred to as custodian banks whose sole job is really to make sure that when you think you own something, there is a provable lineage that says you actually own this piece of paper, which means you own part of a company or part of a company's profits. In Bitcoin, obviously, or any other cryptocurrency, one of the, the great things is you can actually have a direct view between your private keys and some allotment inside of a blockchain. Um, one of the tricky things is because of the regulations, they're not really adapted to that. Um, so there's nobody that can really hold those keys for you or ensure that when you think you own something, you do in fact own it. It's almost like you've got keys to a safety deposit box uh, with a lot of gold inside it, but actually that gold uh, inside that safety deposit box is the gold you manage for all of your customers. And if somebody stole that key, they'd get access to all of that gold. So you'd rather give that key to somebody who's very, very good at managing keys, like a bank who specializes in, in doing precisely that. And there are a lot of other challenges like that, but it links to another announcement that came out this week. There's a story, I think, um, that we've got directly from the CME group, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, um, they've announced that they're going to be doing Bitcoin futures. So what's a future and, and how does that help? So a future is um, a contract traded on an exchange between um, some set point in the future. Uh, so generally these work on, on fixed dates, um, like the end of December. And we trade based on whether we think a product is going to go up and down an underlying product. In this case, it happens to be Bitcoin. So we trade dollars back and forth if the price of Bitcoin measured in dollars goes up or down. Um, CME is the biggest exchange in the world and the biggest futures exchange by extension. Um, so this is a very big announcement based solely on the fact that there is so much money inside this exchange. If, if you recall, a few months ago, we talked about SIBO, which is another big Chicago exchange, uh, which actually does options in, in U.S. equities, was talking about launching a Bitcoin future. So this is just the bigger exchange that does futures right now. Uh, going in and launching this. And this is a much bigger deal just based on the size of this company. So we've had um, the Illinois State on uh, Blockchain Insider before talking about some of the innovation coming out of Chicago in the blockchain and DLT space. And both SIBO uh, and CME now making moves in this space. It is interesting that uh, as a financial center, Chicago does seem to be really moving forward. And it was always a financial center that was uh, kind of strong in the commodities. So everything from oil, gold, wheat, corn, you name it, they were, they were a large center 
incentive for that sort of stuff. And you could see why futures evolved. Uh, when I spoke to Chris Giancarlo, who's uh, the chair of the CFTC on our uh, sister podcast, Fintech Insider, he talked about this being useful for, say, a farmer who uh, wants to sell their wheat or their corn, um, but doesn't know if they're going to have a good harvest or not, uh, but can lock in a price today for a, a harvest that's going to happen tomorrow. So it manages some of the volatility and some of the risk for those people. And we talk about Bitcoin being volatile, managing the volatility and the risk uh, could be could be really useful for a lot of people involved. Uh, as we know, though, there have been a lot of detractors from Bitcoin recently, and it seems like every CEO wants to have an opinion lately. Um, but the latest one to um, to have an opinion, of course, is the Goldman Sachs CEO, Lloyd Blankfein, says, I'm open to Bitcoin. Colin, what do you think about this one? This was an interesting one. Um, what I really liked was he, he compared Bitcoin itself as an analogy. He said he's not comfortable with Bitcoin. Obviously, there's a lot of negative connotations. We've talked about everything on this show from uh, money laundering, buying and selling uh, illegal products like drugs to Iran getting involved. That That's something if you're you're the CEO of a regulated institution, it's very hard to wrap your mind around. But his analogy was fantastic. He said, when mobile phones first came out, we were just generally uncomfortable with them as a society. And that became something that was very natural and normal inside of our society to use those all the time. So he wanted to stay open to the idea that Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies in general could become something that is quite powerful and useful, which I, I think can be extended to pretty much everything innovation. Um, there's a lot of these things that come out and they sound like a really bad idea and it's very easy to pick holes and find things that don't work. But often it's, it's hard just to say, well, maybe somebody else is going to figure out how to make this work. And if you're in that mindset, uh, sometimes that's, that's the best place to be. I think there's a lot of intellectual honesty that uh, Lloyd Blankfein's showing here to your point, Colin, which is last week we talked about boomer biases and things people say like, oh, it's tulip mania, uh, oh, it's, it's, it's a bubble, oh, it's a flash in the pan that miss some of the nuance. It may be a, a bubble. It may even represent tulip mania and it may disappear, but that's to miss something that could also be innovative and interesting. And writing this off, writing off the idea of Bitcoin, I do think is, is still naive regardless regardless of, of where you are. And I think this is a, an alternate position to be able to see something that looks like it could be dangerous, to see something that looks scary. And like with mobile phones, I do remember in 2007 dealing with uh, a number of uh, senior executives at the time who said that the uh, smartphones would never replace their trusty BlackBerry. And I, I think there are one or two still holding out with their Blackberries. They're still there. There's some holdouts, but eventually everybody comes around, uh, except maybe the Bitcoin community itself, which seems to be constantly at war with itself, Colin. We've, we've got to talk about, as we have on the last couple of shows, this idea of Segwit 2, the sequel, bigger and badder and more scary than the first Segwit. Uh, this is, of course, Bitcoin uh, potentially about to fork again, creating another version of Bitcoin, potentially. And there's a great synopsis here on Coindesk. It's called Understanding Segwit 2x, why Bitcoin's next fork might not mean free money. So what's, uh, what's the summary here, Colin? Right. So um, absolutely, if you're, if you're holding Bitcoin, if you're interested in Bitcoin, go in and have a read of this because, and the, the links in the show notes, uh, it's a very good synopsis, as you said. So we talked a while ago about SegWit or segregated witness activating. And what this was, was essentially um, an upgrade inside of Bitcoin that allowed us to pull some extra information outside of a transaction that made them smaller, which meant that we could fit more in them. Of course, right now, as I stand, um, Bitcoin blocks 
ignoring the, the segregated witness aspect, um, are limited to one megabyte in size every 10 minutes, which works out to be about seven transactions per second over the course of 10 minutes. Um, this removing the, the witness, segregating the witness, means that we can effectively double that or put about 14 transactions per second in that plus or minus. A, a group um, led by DCG or the Digital Currency Group, um, which also is uh, one of the owners of Coindesk and, and a few other uh, prominent companies inside of um, the Bitcoin space, has said, right, in order to get that through when it was happening, part of what we should have in order to appease some of the, particularly the miners, is to increase that block size to double it. And this is kind of that second aspect. So they said, okay, we're going to allow segregated witness, but we want to increase the block size. There, there are lots of technical difficulties we won't get into, but one of them brings brings about something called a hard fork, which means everything that happens before it um, won't be accepted uh, going forward. So you can't basically keep the same file type going forward because it just wouldn't be acknowledged. This is, has irked a lot of people who say, um, it's not a good way to to scale things out and uh, potentially breaks things if people don't upgrade, and they fought against it. Uh, notably, it talks about the developers and people that run full nodes. These are basically full copies of a blockchain, i.e. all the transactions that have happened inside of Bitcoin, because it would increase the amount of things that they need to hold on to. Now, um, miners who are actually trying to receive transaction fees are all for this, as well as a few other different kinds of companies. Um, so this breaks down who's for and against and why that might be. Um, so have a look at it, but uh, it is something that could, when it comes out in about uh, 10 days from when we're recording this, it, it could wreak a lot of havoc in the Bitcoin markets. And that havoc is, I think, the kind of thing that a lot of people are concerned about when talking about the price, especially when uh, their friends, their parents may have invested a little bit of money in some of their savings now into, into Bitcoin. And there's a lot of uncertainty out there. When when I speak to people, uh, that uncertainty is, is certainly what... Uh, confuses and concerns people but we will have to keep watching this closely colin because as you say there's uh, no investment advice on this show but there's absolutely a desire to follow this and to see the technology improve uh, i i wonder if in, in a conversation a couple of days ago i had uh, with with a friend and colleague we were sort of saying oh, have people started messing with the core of bitcoin too much and maybe we need to start layering over it we've talked on previous shows about the lightning network uh being kind of of a, a layer on top of Bitcoin that allows transactions to happen much faster. Often people talk about Bitcoin can't scale and it's too slow. But actually, if you compare it with Visa, when we think about Visa or MasterCard, they seem very, very fast. But they seem fast because they're tricking you. Uh, Visa and MasterCard don't transactions don't hit your bank for two to three days. So Bitcoin suddenly at two to three hours seems quite fast. What Visa and MasterCard do is they authorize a transaction and say, Colin's gone to make a payment in the store. Colin, yeah, we think he's good for it. He'll be able to complete that payment in two to three days' time. So let's just authorize that transaction. They don't actually move the money for a couple of days. Bitcoin moves the money straight away and sets about doing that. And yes, it takes time and yes, it's slow, but it does it in two to three hours. Now, if Visa didn't have its authorization network, it would seem a lot slower than Bitcoin or vice versa. If Bitcoin had an authorization network, which many assume Lightning will be, it will 
seem a lot, lot faster. And of course, there are others out there like Zcash um, and then the new piece by JP Morgan and Quorum and, and Zcash that look like they could be competitors as well as Ripple. So uh, the payment space is is interesting. But speaking of the slowness of and some of the common uh, criticisms of Bitcoin, uh, the big one, of course, is the uh, the amount of power consumption uh, that, uh, that Bitcoin uses. There's a great article, I think, that you found here, Colin, in Vice, who've been really getting deep and doing some interesting stories lately into the Bitcoin space. So Vice have a headline here, one Bitcoin transaction now uses as much energy as your house in a week. That's one heck of a, of a quote right there. Colin, what's going on here? I mean, a, a lot of this is kind of mental gymnastics of trying to figure out how much um, energy the Bitcoin network actually uses, because that's not very clear. But um, they, they interviewed some people who, who put out a couple of different slots. And ultimately, what they came out with is Bitcoin itself uh, over the course of this year is actually going to use as much electricity as the country of Nigeria, which is, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the most populous or the second most populous country in Africa. So that's that's a lot of energy. I think they have that down to 24 terawatts. And if you break that down into an actual Bitcoin being produced or a Bitcoin transaction, that's as much as um, the average American household would use over the course of a week. Um, that, that sounds really, really scary. Um, but if you put it in some of these other contexts, and Simon, you came up with some great numbers here. If you put it in other contexts, really that insane yeah I, I people do throw these numbers around about how much power bitcoin uses but i actually looked at that as a percentage of global consumption uh, and it looks like bitcoin's using around 0.1 percent of uh, power in the world which seems like an awful lot when you consider it's just for quote-unquote one technology but then you look at data centers globally looking at between one and 1.5 percent uh, so more than 10x and then you consider the actual hash rate so how much uh, hashing power you're getting from those data centers and there are various estimates out there on how much hashing power google has versus how much hashing power amazon has and the difficulty and there's a lot a lot of nuance missing but bitcoin would seem to have almost as much hash rate as most of the data centers in most of the world um, with an error margin of 10x, right? So it depends on whose estimate you believe. But it's either 10% of all data centers or it's uh, 100% of all data centers. And this is for a decentralized technology that's hard to organize, run by different people around the world don't necessarily trust or know each other. But whilst I was picking this out and sort of unpicking some of these numbers, and again, I think this um, boomer bias thing I've got to go back to. Uh, people talk about you know, Bitcoin, it's clearly a bubble. Bitcoin, uh, oh, it's it's tulip mania. Uh, Bitcoin, it uses too much power. Bitcoin, it's never going to scale. I think you actually need to go look at the numbers of this and see that this is early and it's not as bad as you think it is. And when I say it's early, what I mean by that is if you consider the internet in 1996, you would say, hmm, this stuff's never really going to threaten blockbuster video because it's never going to be fast enough for video to run through it. But I was talking a moment ago about the possibility of using new layers over the top of Bitcoin to make it appear faster. That's an entirely possible thing that we, we could see one day. Uh, and, and then, yeah, there were some really other good stats that stuck out to me. Uh, Brazil, who use uh, 498 terawatt hours, so significantly more than the uh, 24 terawatt what hours that Bitcoin uses are at 82% renewable energy, uh, which makes you think how much Bitcoin power is generated through renewables. And uh, way to go, Brazil. Uh, I had no idea of that stat. And uh, thank you, Wikipedia, for it. 
And that got me thinking. There are some cool projects out there like um, Sferity and um, Power Ledger and Grid Plus that are looking to really build uh, energy efficiency and decentralized energy uh, in the long term so that you can generate your own solar energy and sell it back to the grid or just sell it to each other. Uh, so there's there's a lot of interesting things happen. In fact, uh, there was a story on Coindesk just today, I believe, when we record this on Tuesday the 7th uh, of November 2017, that says Shell and others are going to adopt distributed ledger for their uh, oil supply chain. So this is the British Petroleum, Shell, Statoil, as well as several banks, including ING, ABN AMRO, and SOCGEN, as well as trading firms such as Governor, Cook, Supply Chain and Trading, and Mercuria, are all using a blockchain-powered platform for energy trading that will eventually be open to all market participants. So there's there's two sides to this. There's Is Bitcoin uh, sort of super power-consuming, or is it actually changing how we consume power? Yeah, and I think there's a specific thing in here. Like um, today, as it stands, Bitcoin kind of derives its value just from that expenditure of energy. And it, it could really change the game if um, subsidized energy that's based on coal in central China goes away and people start using renewables. And I know there are lots of people that are kind of looking at that. Um, back in my home state of Washington State, a lot of people are using uh, hydroelectric dams, and that is a, a renewable energy of sorts. Um, and you have a lot of people talking about using other types of um, these energies. I'd really like to see that take off, um, not just in the, the mining, but as you were saying, Simon, there's lots of other cool byproducts that might come out of looking at doing these things um, in tracking it and seeing how money moves around as well. So all, all for seeing the evolution on both sides of this. And so in summary, uh, lots of power being used, lots of opportunity to use power differently and possibly even remake energy markets. Uh, but let's change gears a little bit, Colin, from uh, Bitcoin, because, well, we can't forget about this ICO space. It is the provider of all things comedy. Uh, and of course, a story on Coindesk, uh, the SEC, so the Securities and Exchange Commission, have said that celebrity crypto endorsements could become illegal. Colin, what's going on here? This was the, the hardest story for me this week. Um, I'm, I'm really disappointed because I now know that it's very unlikely that The Rock will ever endorse an ICO. Oh, Dwayne Johnson, we wanted you to endorse an ICO. We, we voted for you. You were our guy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, you know, he's kind of a badass. Maybe he'll break the law and go for it anyways. Um, so what they have said is um, right now, currently, ignoring blockchain, ICOs, all that fun stuff, um, if you are a celebrity or anybody else trying to promote a security and what you do is promote that to anybody willingly, um, that is against the law. And that's been against the law for some 80 years now. Uh, they have now said, well, acknowledging that a lot of these ICOs may actually be securities. If you're trying to use your celebrity or using your social media status or anything else to sell these things out just because of who you are, that most likely is illegal as well. Um, it, it's not really go, going to tell us anything new other than the fact that we know these things are securities and you got to be careful they're securities. Can I just say I love the fact that you used willy-nilly in a sentence? Well done. That's just beautiful. Uh, but on top of using willy-nilly in a sentence, I just want to point out that on Fintech Insider, which is our sister show, on episode 150, uh, which is our After Dark episode, we did a true or false on a celebrity endorsement section. So go play along with that episode. See if you can figure out which celebrity has endorsed an ICO and which celebrity has not endorsed an ICO. And do let us know at B Chain Insider who your favorite celebrity 
celebrity would be. So, Simon, what do you think is a better option than uh, Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, to sponsor these things? I don't think there are many better options than Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, about pretty much anything. Like, I want him to sing at my next birthday party, because uh, he's, he's a pretty good singer, apparently. I saw Moana. I, I know the guy can sing. Um, but actually, if we're being serious, um, then do you know how, like, Reddit has the upvote, downvote buttons? Something like that would be kind of cool, Colin. Well, I, we do have a, a sponsor, thankfully, this week, um, in addition to our, our main sponsors, um, a company called Zilla, which is a marketplace app, uh, some, something like a Reddit or an Amazon for ICOs. You can upvote and downvote these ICOs to talk about which ones are better, which ones are worse, and it can help you participate in them uh, using tokens or credit cards with a single click. Uh, pre-register for the limited beta app of Zilla at Z or ZLA.io. I downvote your use of the word Z. Uh, that's what I'm going to do. But I'm going to upvote your recording of that ad. Um, big thanks to the folks at Zilla for sponsoring the show. Whilst we're on the subject of celebrities, uh, there's, of course, the famous Tapscots who wrote the Blockchain Revolution book, who are many celebrities in the blockchain space, Colin. Uh, but there's a number of stories that came out of Laura Shin and Forbes this week. So uh, do you want to walk us through this one? Because drama. Yeah, I just have to say, Laura Shin, you have been shit hot over the last week or so. Uh, so keep it up. Um, so the Tapscots, or as, as one of our good friends calls them, the Tapscotch, we're trying to raise a hundred million Canadian, which is uh, just shy of 80 million US, um, for their, their project next block global, uh, which is a venture capital fund of sorts, um, looking at solely investing in the blockchain space. Um, what they were trying to do is, is publicly list this on the Toronto stock exchange through a really bizarre process called a reverse takeover. So it wasn't an IPO. Um, but the, the idea was they'd buy another company that was already listed and take it over and turn it into something new. Uh, Laura reported on the 1st of November, um, so just about a week ago now, that four of the advisors had been uh, erroneously listed in there. Uh, they weren't actually advisors. So one of them, interestingly, was the father of Ethereum founder Vitalik Buterin, uh, Dimitri Buterin. Uh, another one was uh, very active in the space, uh, Vinay Langham who is one of the uh, shark take sharks on the South African show, uh, as well as a few other people who work at Coinbase and the Fed. It, it just was really messy. I love this idea, Colin, that we didn't just get Vitalik. We got Vitalik's dad. Like, we, we can do one better than Vitalik. We're, his dad's investing us. That's how, that's how great we are. But also this idea that I'm going to put a lot of faces on a slide, and I'm going to use those faces to pretend these people are my advisors, and I'm going to use those to, to get that to invest in us. I mean, it could be that somebody junior somewhere has just messed up and, and not done the due diligence, but it's the sort of thing you'd expect more in the ICO space than you would expect expect um in the in the regulated space i guess but the the story the story kept rolling i think colin it, it did and and one funny thing i'll just stop there is in the ico space i mean we just heard about this what just an hour ago from one of our friends um it, this happens all the time and it's very surprising to see when this amount of money has come into it um fortunately because of laura's excellent reporting about two days later she had an update for us that uh, large canadian bank cibc had pulled their funding for this project. They had some uh, sizable chunk of this. I believe they were one of the lead investors. 
Um, she reported they've actually pulled out specifically because of these falsehoods. Unbelievable. Uh, the real questions that come up once uh, once something breaks on Forbes uh, and the credibility that a, a large organization like a, like a global bank needs uh, is really powerful. Um, but then, of course, not missing a beat, Laura was also the first to bring us news that the entire project has now been scrapped even with funds being returned to investors. Colin, could it have gone any more wrong in three days uh, for the Tapscots here? I, I, I really, I don't think it could have. Um, I feel bad for them, but I don't. Um, you really shouldn't lie about these things, especially when $100 million is on the line, whatever kind of dollar that is. We're talking about big figures here. You need to go out and you need to operate at a very high level. These guys had built themselves a very good name. Um, we can question a lot of what they put out, um, but they've built an excellent marketing name. And this seems just very, you know, sophomoric to go out and try to say we have these people or father of, of somebody's who are investing in our project or advising our project when they don't. Uh, it's Indeed. not that difficult to go out and talk to people. And if they say no, don't put the pictures in. There's also, uh, I think, something quite sad to me about the fact that uh, I would use for beginners uh, Don Tapscott's TED.com talk on what bitcoin is because i do think that they had become uh, experts at making the subject very accessible which is a subject near and dear to my heart this this uh topic does tend to get clouded in technical jargon and it's really important that we focus less on tech for tech's sake and more on solving real world problems uh, like for example we talked about uh, can we make energy markets more efficient and that mean that gives people energy that they didn't have before or can we make it so that uh, we can include people in financial services that couldn't be included before solving those problems are not only uh, good for the world but they're potential profit centers for for companies as well um but of course uh we we did have a story last week as well with with a, a rather stunning fall from grace um we won't spend too much time on it but uh, let's just mention that um, tezos the one of the famous one of the world's largest icos um raising around i think 232 million dollars i think it was um they're getting sued and last week on episode 18 of Blockchain Insider, Stephen Pally, well, let's just say he lost his freaking mind about it. It was absolute comedy gold. It was brilliant, it, but also in really insightful from both you and he. Uh, and there's another story here in F News about um, Tezos facing that class action lawsuit. Colin, a uh, number of stories we didn't have time to cover this week. There's, there's always so much blockchain news. Um, first one, you wrote a thing? I, I wrote a thing, believe it or not. It was a very long thing as well. Uh, on R3's research website, we won't talk about it, but if you have several hours and want to learn about uh, derivatives clearing on distributed ledgers, go have a look. Uh, that's enough of you and your very long thing, Colin. Um, next story that we didn't have time to cover is in Quartz. Uh, UN, the UN themselves, are apparently using a forked version of Ethereum to fund food for thousands of refugees um so quartz uh, check that story out interesting that they're not using the main ethereum network interesting that they're using it in a, in a trial will they start to use it more will it allow them to get money to people without corruption uh, which they've they've been struggling with for many years as part of the world food program will the fact that it's decentralized or centralized in some way hinder or help them in that 
there's CryptoCoins News, India's largest bank going big on blockchain. Story and Vice that I absolutely loved about Russia going all in on Bitcoin. Uh, again, probably not helping Bitcoin's perception in the mainstream, uh, but a really interesting view as to how when your oil is very, very cheap, Bitcoin mining looks like a very profitable endeavor. Uh, story and Business Insider about um, Deutsche Bank signaling the end of fiat money. Interestingly, this isn't a story about cryptocurrencies. It's just a story about how fiat money since uh, 71 and moving away from the gold standard has really changed uh, how hyperinflation has come into our economy. And we're probably at the end of a demographics boom and, and a population boom. Then, And we really need to think about uh, how do we move towards a, a, some deflationary pressures inside currency and, and creating value that way. And last, but by no means least, there's a story from our friend Kadim Shubber in uh, FT Alphaville about how Bitcoin is marketed to the masses, which again is, is really scary. This looks like some of the stuff from the old penny stocks days. Kadim goes into and breaks down, uh, I think, something that's, uh, that's really quite disturbing as a practice, which is taking vulnerable people and pushing to them uh, investment opportunities for a price, for a deposit, and not really explaining how they invest in Bitcoin in the process. Uh, and lots of dancing and lots of clapping was involved so uh, really concerning stuff colin um anything else you want to mention before we move on to some of our interviews uh just go read that long paper <laughs> go read that very very long paper in banking technology by colin g platt and um, don't forget listeners you can let us know what you think about any of the stories we've covered all the ones that we forgot to cover get in touch with us on twitter at b chain insider that's be chain insider to share your thoughts or just give at colin g platt some stick or give me some stick at uh, sy taylor if you want to pick up on us about anything just pick on us personally otherwise you can drop us an email at podcast 11fs.com we'd love to hear from you and 11fs is the company that brings you this podcast we're a challenger agency and we help banks asset managers or anybody with a challenge in blockchain or dlt to achieve more if you want to understand how to commercialize blockchain projects when they're going to be real or if you just want to give colin some stick um, then you can get in touch with us at hello at 11fs.com or check out our website 11fs.com okay we've got to get to a couple of interviews all about esports and how blockchain could potentially help esports which may be suffering from too much centralization what's esports let's find out so, uh, Vlad, thanks for being on Blockchain Insider with us. Appreciate you taking some time to speak to us. Uh, Vlad, you're from DMarket. Can you tell us a little bit about who DMarket are and a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm the biggest private seller of games in the world. In the past five years, we've sold more than 15 million of digital game copies. And uh, uh, they we sell them as codes for Steam, uh, Origin, Uplay, PS4, Xbox, doesn't matter. We've sold dozens of millions of those. Just a year ago, or already maybe a year and a half, we started another project, Skinscash, to trade virtual items uh, from Dota, CSGO, PUBG, and it's already the second largest in the world. And then another project, actually DMarket, came up to our minds, uh, the project which could actually make any virtual item become a real uh, world asset. That's what we're doing. Um, and a couple of words, what is that is... Uh, right now, uh, there are just a couple of games uh, which uh, um, make it possible to trade in-game items, such as CSGO, Dota, or something that's uh, in, in, in the form of skins. 
well, we already trade them and successfully everything is great, but I was always thinking how we can give this possibility to every other game on the planet. So let me just step through that because when you talk about virtual goods, you're talking about the things that you, the items you buy in a game. It might be uh, a new gun, a new sword, a new uh, new, uh, new skin for somebody, like all of these sorts of things. And what you're saying is you guys have experience in helping distribute games. You have experience in helping people buy, sell, and trade the items within games. But with D market you notice some gaps in the market and, and what were yeah. those the gap is that uh there are at the moment there are just a couple of games like csgo and dota uh which allow you to trade the skins uh we are trying to give this possibility to every other game on the planet so uh at the moment uh, all the market with uh just a couple of games on steam <clears throat> it's around mm, four billion dollars annual turnover and we wanted to give this possibility to trade items, not only which you can buy, but to earn in a game. It could be a pile of crystals, a sword, a shield, a fancy car, or maybe even a, a laundry machines and seams. We wanted to give the possibility to trade all these assets between all gamers in the world. And <clears throat> it was it's easy for Steam because all, all skins are, um, belong to one company and they trade within these couple of games. But when we tried to connect a couple of game developers or publishers with their games to one marketplace, it was pretty hard with all technologies because we had to synchronize a lot of databases with each exchange of an item. So this makes complete sense because with Steam, you've got one distribution platform for a lot of the games and everybody is buying their game from Steam if they're gaming on a PC. Um, but if you're not gaming on a PC or if you are using games by Windows or many of the other platforms out there that they're available for games or even a game that's not even served through those platforms, the items inside them can't can't be easily traded. And like you were saying, you were trying to talk to many different databases and by talking to those databases, you, you were having a, a connection issue. So how, how did you feel like uh, blockchain or DLT or, um, or, or DMarket would go about solving that? The thing is that uh, we're building it's a, a completely decentralized marketplace, so it's it's kind of uh, it's a blockchain uh, to which every game developer connects. They put their items on the blockchain and they become like uh, already uh, real assets, like bitcoins. Let's say, let's just assume it, and then they distribute these eight items between gamers in their games, and then these items could be traded easily as uh, any other cryptocurrency inside the blockchain and we're building a marketplace on top of it. So with Steam, they allow to trade virtual items only in a couple of games. We want to give this possibility to everybody else. And another, much more as for me, important thing what blockchain gives to us all is that uh, we are excluding third parties. With skins, it means that for now on Skins Cash, we trade around 100,000 skins per day. Dozens of these skins cost like two, three, or even four thousand dollars. Wow! Uh, people are yeah. Th this is something which is even for me hard to understand. I was even uh, talking to a couple of our customers. I was asking why, why <laughs> they explained to me that they spend most of their free time uh, in these games, uh, in these communities. This is their social life. They're preferred much more than any real things. That's why they like it. But what I was thinking that uh, with Steam and these couple of games, uh, these skins actually doesn't belong to you because Steam can ban your account, can freeze your skins, can uh, withdraw your skins. As for me, you can't build a business or collection or something uh, real on the things which doesn't belong to you. 
So it's not like buying a car where you actually buy a physical car and you have the keys and it sits in your garage. If you buy if you buy the digital equivalent of that, it doesn't actually belong to you. It belongs to you as so long as your account is activated by, in this case, Steam um, from Valve. And I've seen a lot of cases, even in my life, because uh, my grandmother lives in Germany. I visit her a lot. And sometimes I, I use Steam over there. I was banned like a couple of times for weeks because I was using my well, I was using my account from a different country. Come on, if we are paying so much uh, money and time to those items, it couldn't be that. That's what I was thinking. And with blockchain, it's completely different. When the things are on blockchain, it's like uh, again, like any other cryptocurrency, like bitcoins. Nobody can take it from you. Nobody can fake it. Nobody can forge it. If you spend your time, you invested your time, invested your skills, even tried your luck, you earned something. This is yours. This is what I want to give to every gamer on the planet. Makes sense. So talk to me about the esports market generally, because I know a lot of listeners may be gamers, but a lot of listeners might not be. If, if um, you know, I, I haven't uh, been a serious gamer for more than 10 years. And when I really went back a couple of years ago and started looking at the uh, esports industry and just how big it has become, I mean, how, how big is it now? And, and what are you seeing? Can you give me some examples? Well, what I see, uh, because uh, at the moment we are um, um, traveling all around the world with the roadshow and especially spend a lot of time in, uh, for example, in the United States. And we had a lot of meetings with uh, venture capitalists, which are now looking into cryptocurrencies, into interesting, successful projects and such. Uh, there are three uh, most on fire topics on uh, within venture capitalists in the in United States. Artificial intelligence, uh, virtual reality and esports. There's three things. They invest huge amount of money. Uh, this is totally uh, next big thing because uh, even when I'm having uh, a speech on a conference, uh, five, six, seven hundred people are sitting. I'm asking them, uh, "Do you have kids?" Like half of those have kids. And I'm asking, "How many of your kids are playing hockey?" Like two or three hands. How many play basketball? Two or three hands. How many of your kids are playing games? Everybody playing games. So it's totally a next big thing. And uh, like ten, nine out of ten. Uh, most popular computer games at the moment are competitive titles. Or it's 4 and 4, 5 and 5, 6 and 6, this is esports. Even right now, we're in Hong Kong. Uh, I've been speaking with a lot of uh, people over here, investors, partners, and etc. They're saying exactly the same thing. The, just the difference is that here, it's very hot, but they're playing it more on mobile devices. But this is uh, something in human nature, always a competition. It, all, it started in prehistoric ages, it will, it will go, go, and go. Uh, in my humble opinion, it will ev uh, evolve into virtual reality in the coming, I don't know, 10 years, 100% it will evolve in virtual reality, but we will compete and obviously compete in computer games. So esports has become massive. It, it looks like it's only just started its growth trajectory. Some of the professional esports teams are bigger than some of the biggest professional sports teams, with sports stars making similar salaries, if not greater, uh, filling stadiums full of people to watch the the, the major cup finals and, and events. Uh, and yet, the, it seems like the marketplace itself for uh, buying tickets, buying items, is both immature and full of opportunity because you're effectively recreating the real world inside these virtual worlds and yet the ability to communicate across these worlds is still somewhat limited in terms of infrastructure this is exactly what we're doing it's something uh, again it's sometimes even for me hard to understand but uh, when when people spend so much time playing games so much time earning something and then we can put this on the blockchain and thus make these virtual items feel like real 
This is an enormous market. Uh, when we are giving our speeches, and I'm giving examples that, for example, in five years, Amazon, when we will be searching for gloves, and your search query will return 10 gloves, five of which will be real ones from retail shops, but five will be gloves from uh, popular computer games. That's easy doable with blockchain. Same thing, uh, the first thing which I will start after the market will, uh, will start rolling is I will start building a collection. Imagine how much money will uh, cost a collection of, for example, I don't know, uh, all the weapons from uh, all the major tournaments and the guys who won them in the upcoming like five years. You can uh, collect these items. Nobody can take it from you. Nobody can forge it. Everybody will see their sanctity and they will be unique. With all the popularity of esports, one of the examples we give that at this moment, the auditory of football is 300 million people. But the auditory just of one game, League of Legends, is 270. It's it's uh, wow. it's crazy. So the audience of of the most popular sport in the world, soccer, football, is three hundred million people. One esports game, League of Legends, has two hundred seventy million people. I mean, when you consider these statistics, they're eye watering. And I think there's a generation of people that are missing this. Therefore, there's a generation of people not investing in it. But as you say, the venture capitalists are. But there are real problems in the market, and folks like you are trying to solve them with with D market. So if people want to get involved in D market, want to learn more about it, where do they go to find out more? Oh, uh, we have a lot of information on our website. We're constantly updating our documentation. For example, tomorrow uh, we will roll out the updated uh, white paper with much more technical details about what uh, what will be uh, live on the platform. This week, I think Thursday or Friday, we will roll out already the uh, alpha version of the marketplace itself with the blockchain testnet, just for people to give the idea how we see it. It will it will be. And we actually will start it in Q1 2018. That will already generate revenue in, 2000, in Q1 2018. Wow, that's something you don't hear about a lot of people in the blockchain space talking about when they intend to generate revenue. That's, uh, that's a really encouraging signal. Uh, actual revenue, I like the sound of that. And, and so what was that website again? Did, do you have a domain name? Is it dmarket.io? Uh, even .com will still lead you to our project. Dmarket.com. That's that's how you find out more. Vlad, thank you for being with us on Blockchain Insider. Yeah, thank you for questions. Well, nice to talk with you. Great. So we are here doing an interview on Blockchain Insider, and I have the wonderful Alex from Dream Team. Alex, how are you, sir? I'm pretty good, buddy. What about you? I'm not too bad, thank you. Could uh, you tell us, uh, tell our listeners who Dream Team are uh, just before we get kick into the blockchain goodness? Okay, so it's really simple. Dream Team is an infrastructure project for esports and gaming ecosystem. Basically, we are solving a solution for 300 million gamers who want to build, grow, manage, and monetize their teams. And with unlocking of blockchain and smart contacts, we have unique opportunity to build one-of-a-kind platform and payment getaway for sponsorship payments, for transfer markets, salaries, prize money, and media rights sales. Wow, media rights, transfer markets. This all sounds like the kind of thing that pro athletes have in the sports world. So talk to me a little bit about esports and some of the similarities there, but also some of the gaps and differences. Sure. Um, I think esports right now, it was like a very underground movement even like 10 12 years ago but right now is one of the huge booming market on the planet basically esports is whenever people are playing computer games professionally and whenever we i was um, i started my esports career in 1999 
as an amateur player in StarCraft, then moved to professional player in Counter-Strike, participated in world events, was a team captain, coach, manager, and finally CEO of Navi, which is second most popular, one of the most successful esports team on the planet. And um, through this time, esports has evolving a lot. And um, what I can say is right now, it's booming. It's rapidly growing. We can say that the prize money in esports this year will reach about $100 million, maybe even more. And uh, this is basically the all-time highest. Uh, and a prize money growth rate is about like 20-25% a year, according to news reports. Those are some pretty eye-watering numbers. So this is a market. It seems to be growing rapidly. But what are the problems in the market? So if we've got a lot of people playing um, video games competitively, the prize money's growing. How? How? What is the business model as well for for a professional sports esports team? I think like if we are saying about the business model in general, so you can basically compare es professional esports team to any kind of sports team. Yeah, it's pretty much the same. Majority of the revenue that's, we are, that's any professional team uh, is getting coming out from media rights and sponsorship sales. Also, there is a small chunk of prize money that uh, team are earning, yeah, but majority are distributing to the players. Also, selling the merchandise and some accessories, and as well as some sort of the league's income whenever you're participating in a league and you are kind of participating in a ref share. That's basically it for the for the teams, yeah, for the professional teams. But as as you said, esports market is still is still growing, and it has a lot of challenges on the way to become a biggest sports on the planet. On the one hand, we can just compare football to League of Legends, most popular sports versus most popular esports, and uh, we can say that in League of Legends there are one hundred clubs. Meanwhile, in football there are three hundred thousand. And the difference is huge because managing and building a team right now, it's extremely hard. There are uh, people like 18, 21, 24 year old guys and girl or girls, they need to come to the web uh, to create, to bank, create, open the bank account, create a legal entity, find players, like sign contract with players, find sponsors, hire lawyer, accountant. Come on, it's not possible, yeah, for, for, for this kind of age people. And uh, it will cost them a couple of thousand bucks couple of months of their time and three four hundred each each uh, each month this is the first one the second one it's about the revenue yeah so like if media rights and sponsorships in in sports about 90 million in esports 400 million and different problem not is even in audience size or its age the main problem is the ARPU, average revenue per user is drastically uh, in esports drastically lower than sports so it's one dollar to 18. once again something is wrong and this is how it should, it should be fixed and over here it's the problem is sometimes whenever we've been playing on events as a professional teams we're not getting paid and uh whenever teams are paid sometimes they're tricking their players not paying for the players and uh if you are a sponsor or uh, how you can like enter the market to sponsor like to choose any team or tournament to sponsor it's very there is no tools so i i define those two problems as a core for market and right now we are building dream team to resolve both that makes 
uh, a lot of sense to me that on the one hand, you have a lack of infrastructure. That means it's hard for younger people to have the tools to build clubs and to support uh, all of the administration that that club really requires or that team really requires. Um, and, and we've seen this in a lot of markets where online payments used to be very hard to take and receive. And then companies like Stripe and Braintree came along and made that a lot easier. Online shops used to be hard and then people gave, came along and gave you the tools. So there's the infrastructure piece. But the the second piece, the average revenue per user, is that due to the lack of infrastructure as well? The fact that um, it's hard to monetize the individual uh, customer or or the consumer of that um, product. You know, if I'm watching esports, why am I not as um, valuable as if I'm watching um, a traditional sport? I think it's as as I mentioned. I think there is a huge infrastructure gap. Yeah. So like in esports, there is no transparency. It's it's a pretty young market. Yeah. And it it was like it has been on a planet for like I don't know fifteen years. Imagine those like maybe seventeen, eighteen. But in general, let's compare it to football. Football has been here for one hundred more than one hundred years. Yeah. And that's like already established market. And whenever we are saying that. This market needs some sort of the tools which will provide security, transparency for all parts of the ecosystem, for sponsors, teams, tournaments, and players. And I think whenever this ecosystem changing tools will be in place, we can guarantee that everything can run smoothly. Right now, tournaments can sponsor any tournament or any team, taking into account their media reach or like tournaments results, Whatever it's come from, on smart contracts. On our platform, there is a smart contract for prize money payouts as well for the teams and players. So you're not waiting a lot of time until you get them. So I think whenever uh, all parties will be at the same time collected on the one resource and we can provide transparency, fast transactions, and uh, trust, highest trust levels, as well as security, that's whenever a lot of sponsors will just turn their sites into esports and will invest more. Which makes uh, a lot of sense that uh, there's a lack of transparency. This is something where the players are younger, uh, the infrastructure doesn't exist. Uh, but then why do, uh, why do these platforms need to be you know, based on smart contracts and blockchain? Surely your EA Sports of your world and Valve's of the world, they would be the right people to provide this infrastructure. Doesn't it need a company in the middle of it? Why do I need to have smart contracts and blockchain? So in our in our context, smart contracts are the key for this transparency. Yeah. So basically, whenever I said about the events, yeah, and imagine that's right now even professional teams as we have as Navi, like we are receiving prize money with four or five months delay. Yeah, after the tournament ends, and I don't think it's like it's bringing a lot of value. But whenever we have a smart context, whenever all the teams participating, we are starting the smart context with a tournament, and then we have a signed contract with players. Right after the tournament ends, so the next block, yeah, we're checking the results of the event. In 10 seconds, teams are receiving their prize money, leaving their small cut. 10 seconds more, that's all things distributed to the players. So basically, normal fraud, it's very fast and easy solution. You don't need to wait for months until you get the prize money or even like not get paid. Let's say player salary, based on smart contracts as well. And in the end of the day, we are making hey there is a team manager he's moving uh, he's setting the kpi for a player in uh, marketing and media 
uh, team coach is setting KPI for player, I don't know, improve his headshot ranking in Counter-Strike. Have you seen blockchain eyes on smart contacts? In the end of the day, in the end of the month, smart contacts is smart contact is checking the stats and then paying out the player according to the KPI reach. So there's something about the fact that it's international in nature and that there's no obvious place where these people have accountants. There's no obvious place where these people have uh, armies of lawyers and PR pros running around after them and making sure that all of their money has been collected. Uh, There is, as you say, a fraud risk. There's um, a high cost of doing business. So transparency seems like it's it's a really key, key piece. And one of the things that uh, I often thought as well is that the cost of acquiring payments from a lot of people who might be watching, uh, if, if if you, your viewers are under 18, they may not have a credit card, so they actually can't sponsor somebody and they can't pay for access to things. So there's a there's a there's an equality of access problem there as well. So um, talk to me then, what about uh, the name of your platform and, and what it is? Because you've talked about some of the benefits of smart contracts, but but what actually is your platform? So we are saying this: the treatment is first sports and gaming equipment management network. Yeah, the, like the core thing, it's the all-in-one solution for people who want to build, grow, manage, and monetize their teams. And we are basically adding this. Like on the one hand, this is LinkedIn, yeah, and on the other hand, we are adding smart contracts and blockchain as as a core things for payments, yeah, transparency and security. And that's whenever you said the smart contracts are bringing value. So basically, we are doing the same. As PayPal did for e-commerce, we're doing the same for esports. I like that. So um, if somebody wanted to find out more, when does your platform launch and how do they find out more? So platform is launched already and we, we are live for 10 days. We are already reaching a registration, uh, a one user a minute registration rate. We just launched. And I think the results are really outstanding. Um, for we, we have a token sale. Yeah, this will kick off in the 20th of uh, November for four days, the short one. So uh, you can check it, token.dreamteam.gg. And uh, if you want to just check your our platform and see how it goes, it, you can visit dreamteam.gg. Alex, thank you very much for being on Blockchain Insider. Thank you very much. we got to thank our guests. Big thank you to Voldemir and Alex and, of course, my regular co-host, uh, Colin G. Platt, getting all the stick. <laughs> somebody's got to do it somebody's got to take that stick uh, thank you for listening if you like what you heard um, remember to subscribe to our podcast please please leave us a review on iTunes those reviews help us so much um, spread the word tell people that you like our show tell people to listen um, and get in touch at Chain Insider and let us know what stories we missed what you'd like us to discuss and any guests you'd like to have us on the show until next week goodbye <laughs>